Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. What a day! I woke up this morning and uh, text the smartest person I know. Are we going to war? <laughs> and that smartest person I know is John Zipper, who's also my co-host, and he hosts his own program. A little sad, week, actually. Week <laughs> political roundtable talk. It is. It, I mean, I don't mean to joke around about it, but at this point, it's the only way that I can therapeutically go through my day. But in reading other headlines and news... All of a sudden, things got pretty dark until it got very rainbowy. And what I mean by that, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, President of China's visiting uh, the guy in North Korea. Uh, Cory Booker and Joe Biden are fighting over who's racist, and there needs to be an apology. And this is starting before we even head into 2020. And then you kind of wade through the confection of rainbow all over your social media because it's Pride Month and even the gays are arguing over Taylor Swift's new LGBTQ anthem. And then I had to breathe, read John's message. It's going to kind of be okay, but it will at least get through the day. And the reason why is because we have a fabulous program for you with an awesome, awesome leader in our community. Uh, he is a dear friend and and very close, so I want to put that out there. We're, we're, we got very close during our time serving together. But he has served for San Francisco Pride since 2014 as the executive director. Uh, however, has also been a part of the San Francisco local community for many years, also helping to produce another huge, big event, Beta Breakers, uh, Castro Street Fair. And um, he looks good in leather. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen him in leather recently, but um, <laughs> we once were in a dark bar and it looked like it. Uh, but let's welcome George Ridgely to the program. George, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> so we, we named the title of this interview the Exit Interview, which I think broke and shattered you know, a lot of people's hearts in the community. And when I say that, I mean by you exiting um, San Francisco Pride, this will be your last San Francisco Pride as executive director. It will. Uh, it was not an easy decision to make, although I'm super excited. My next role will be uh, managing permits and reservations for Rec and Park. So I don't expect that, honestly, to be any less stressful. Um, it's citywide. There's 300 properties. I'll still be involved in events like around the city. So I'm super excited about that next opportunity. We're excited for you and we'll get to, you know, you making this decision of leaving. Uh, but before we do all that, let's dial it all the way back. I think for the most part, and you're really good at this, you know, maintaining your composure, keeping your life private for the most part, addressing the media in a very professional way. Uh, but not every day does somebody stop you in the middle of the street and say, George, tell us your story. Tell us who you are and not this, oh, you're the executive director of Pride. Give me VIP tickets. Um, share your coming out story with us. Sure. If I can remember it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I grew up in Southern Maryland um, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, went to Catholic school for the first 12 years, um, went to an all boys Catholic school, um, from ninth grade to 12th grade. Uh, I do remember coming out to friends, um, in the ninth grade. I remember that first year meeting a couple of guys who we clearly connected, um, and we became close friends from there. Uh, I didn't actually come out to, and I was out to everyone. If I, if you worked with me, you knew I was out. If you, were friends with me, you know, I was out. So it was early. It was like 13 when that happened. Sharing that with my family was a completely different story. It wasn't until I was 30 that I actually told my parents, my sister, my brother, uh, and, and they were, and I don't know if there was anxiety around that or, or something, but, uh, they were completely embracing once I came out to them. Um, it's funny because uh, my father said, mm, yeah, we all kind of knew. Um, and then he, he prefaced that further or, uh, and said, well, maybe your mother didn't know, but the rest of us knew. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I mean, I was out, out. By the time I came out, in fact, I came out to them in 1993, uh, which was a March on Washington 
um, there was a march on Washington in 1987 that I participated. I lived in, in I worked in DC in 1987 and I uh, was working at our, actually, thanks for asking this question. So I worked at a place called, um, I worked at a restaurant in the old post office pavilion, which is at uh, on 16th street, like blocks from the white house, unfortunately. And it's a beautiful old building. It is literally the post office uh, or was the post office today. It is the Trump hotel. <laughs> yeah. So when I think about that beautiful building and, and my experience there and the fact of what it is today, it's sad. Um, but I do remember working at the restaurant that Saturday or Sunday in 1987 when the march was happening and people were going to the mall. And I remember kind of handing my keys over to somebody and saying, I'm going to join that and mm. left that afternoon. Then there was an, then I moved to L.A. in 1988. Uh, and so when the March on Washington happened in 1993, um, I went back to go to that march and assumed there would be television cameras and people uh, like covering it. And at that point I was like, well, if my parents see me on TV, I would kind of rather they hear it from me first. So I told them probably days before going to that march. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Thank you for sharing. So how did you get from there to San Francisco and when? So in 88, I moved, uh, and a bunch of us, we were all high school friends. We were all gay. We moved uh, to Southern California. Oh, you were already in California at, at that point. Yeah, I moved, okay. to, I moved to California in 88. Uh, in fact, January 1st, 1988, got in the car, drove across country, oh. never looked back, um, and lived in L.A. from 88 to 96. Um, and I had a partner at the time who in the, in the mid nineties who got a job here in San Francisco mm -hmm. and I followed him to San Francisco. That's literally how I got here. Wow. And when you got here, what were you doing? I mean, did you have a job lined up? Did you know what you wanted to do up here? Not at all. None of the above. Yeah, um, like, let me find a old post office to work in. Yeah. I had been in the restaurant industry and hospitality for I ate like 15 to 20 years prior to that. Yeah. I knew I wanted to get out of that. So I took moving to San Francisco as a way to break that. Yeah. Um, and it was the late nineties. So it was a different tech bubble happening in the late nineties. Um, and I did work for a startup um, right before everything blew apart. Um, and I did temp work and I worked for law firms and I did accounting work. Mm -hmm. um, and I learned things in that. Um, and then the bubble burst, I was one of the unemployed, uh, I had been unemployed for close to eight months when I saw a listing for, um, a customer service person for beta breakers. Okay. Um, and beta breakers was owned by the examiner and my partner was the, um, assistant to the publisher at the time. So I said, do you know anyone? Can you introduce me to anyone? Um, which he did. And so we met, I met with the general manager of beta breakers. Um, her and I hit it off instantly, not unlike Michelle and I. Um, and I started working there immediately. And just over time, I was at beta breakers for 11 years and did a lot of things while I was there. Now, obviously the people here in the room and many of the people listening know what beta breakers is and, and, why it's kind of a an iconic San Francisco thing. But for those who, who are listening who don't know, who are from outside of the area, what is it and what was it like being there? Um, I, I remember it vividly. So, I mean, Beta Breakers is, and now I'm going to sound like a marketing person, one of the <laughs> oldest and largest foot races in the entire world. Really? And it is that. Oh. And it started in 1912, um, it was originally run as a way to kind of bring back like city spirit after the 1906 earthquake. So six years later, the city was still rebuilding. And this race was one of the things that was to bring people out. Okay. Um, and it started very seriously. Like back in 1912, it would have been running clubs and athletes who were participating in the race. None of them dressed as Godzilla or... No, like that really, I mean, you can look at some of the footage or some of the coverage of the early races. There yeah. might have been like 60 people running. Yeah, wow. Um, there was a big push in the 80s to really make it as large as it is today. And 
and that that push came from the producers and it changed hands over time for a very long time and even when i got hired originally it was a nonprofit. it was raising money for it had beneficiaries you ran the race to help raise money for those beneficiaries mm -hmm. um it was later taken over by a for-profit entity and i don't honestly know today whether it continues to be for-profit or non-profit Jeez, what an interesting foreshadow to <laughs> where you're at now and, and the experiences of that. So let's let's jump right into it and talk about San Francisco Pride. The interesting thing about um, coming to work for San Francisco Pride is that you, you weren't hired immediately on the first try. How many times were you interviewed by the organization before you were hired? I believe there were four times um, where either... I approached them or they approached me about the position. Um, and the first three times it was not the right time or it didn't work out. Um, and, uh, and I remember being disappointed all, all, all three of those times, honestly, anecdotally, one of those times was, um, when I was producing the hundredth anniversary of beta breakers and they were looking for an ED and I, I could not step away from the opportunity to produce the hundredth anniversary. So it was me that mm. third time that said, I'm sorry, I can't. Um, but I'm grateful now looking back that, that, um, I had more time to gain more experience before I actually stepped in, in 2014. Mm -hmm. It, your time at San Francisco and at the time of, of, uh, coming in, I think were very critical, um, and you being the right person to lead the organization with the experiences that you had as an event producer and, you know, all, all the stuff that you brought in, 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 in terms of what you learned from Beta Breakers. When you took the position in 2014, did you know what you were getting into? I thought I did. <laughs> <laughs> um not not 100%. I mean there were there were things that happened, you know, weeks within getting hired. The agency had been um through a lot of turmoil leading up to hiring me. Um there had been uh some controversy in 2013 uh in which all of the then board members were voted off by our membership and a new board of directors was completely brought in um at the end of 2013. Um, they are the ones who ultimately hired me, but, you know, I don't think I realized at the time just how much transition that meant, what that meant to have 12 or 13 brand new board members who themselves were learning. Um, and then me coming in the door with a lot of experience, but still a lot to learn, um, and taking on an event at that point that I think was the 44th or 45th year, um, so the agency had tons of, of history and experience that um, uh, it was as smooth a transition as it could have been given the circumstances, I think. What was, what were the, I mean, every year there's obviously a theme and there are issues that people are really kind of worked up about. In 2014, what were the, what were the big ones? 2014 is probably the biggest blur for me out of, because I because literally got hired yeah. six months before the event. Wow. So by the time I was hired, the theme was in place. And I believe the theme was color our world with pride. Um, there, the decisions had been made about community grand marshals. A lot of work was already underway in terms of programming. I don't feel like I really had an opportunity to have, like my stamp on 2014, it was kind of stepping in. And so I'm going to ask the question, not because I believe it, but because I, I, in fact, I've heard this from other people as well about other things where someone's looking at that and then saying, Oh, so it was really easy for you that year. The work was already done. Mm. <laughs> what does the ED do? Oh, that's another hard question to answer. <laughs> I mean, when you think about the agency, just producing the event, right? We're producing one of the largest parades in the country. We have now we have 280 contingents. That's not easy. Like, like, uh, as simple as like thinking about logistically, how do you stage people in the staging area before they step onto the parade route? And you can't, like if you've got 1,500 people marching with you and a float and a vehicle to pull it, how much space does that take to plan? And then think about that times 280 contingents that are all doing something differently. Yeah. 
um, moving that down Market Street for a mile and then dispersing it in a way that keeps it moving. Um, you know, two years into my tenure, we had a parade that lasted over seven hours. Like it started at 1030 in the morning it ended at 530 in the afternoon and everyone was outraged, right? The city (laughs) was not happy that we kept the streets closed for that long. Um, The people who waited in our staging area for four hours or five hours before stepping on the parade were not happy. Um, That's just one piece, right? Then we're producing a celebration at civic center that has hundreds of thousands of people coming to it, 20, over 20 community stages and venues that are produced by community members. Um, We're producing our own main stage, bringing in celebrities, honoring local um, grand marshals and honorees. Typically we have a dozen a year that we're recognizing and honoring. And then all of the pieces that go into that, the permits that need to be pulled for that, what you have to do to set up infrastructure to make it safe and comfortable for hundreds of thousands of people is challenging. And you're also doing it in a neighborhood that is residential and business. So we're closing 25 blocks of Civic Center where there's an FBI building, a state building, our, our, our city buildings. There's thousands of people who live in apartment buildings around there. There are... Um, services, homeless service, services and businesses within that footprint. So people need to come and go from there while we're still doing our thing. And then on top of that, you asked what the, the ED does. Um, uh, we're a membership organization. Mm-hmm. So we have regular member meetings with our members to get input from them and feedback. Um, we have an annual meeting with them where they elect our board of directors um, it's a, I think it's safe to say it's a fairly volatile organization. So the board members, um, there's a lot of, there's a high turnover and on the board, mm-hmm. um, which I think is challenging for the agency. Uh, I have been there six years. In the six years I have been there, I have had the ability to hire three people. Um, in that same time, there have been. 35 new board members that have come and gone and they're like new hires they're they they need attention and they don't know the event and you're you're helping them understand it our budget is 3.2 million dollars so there's lots of legal things around uh an agency with a budget of that side and size in terms of annual audits um uh filings and things we need to do legally to Mm -hmm. stay to stay aligned um, so I'm, I'm looking at all of those and then dealing with any other legal or, or media issues that might be coming in at the same time. I was going to say, I don't know if we have enough time for George to explain um, <laughs> <laughs> what his job entails. Because I think, you know, the operational part in, in planning for this two-day celebration in itself is so big. And then they, on the other hand, there were so many challenges that you would face as an executive director starting with 2014. And just to give people perspective, I mean, if you thought about it from a, uh, from just the budget alone, what was the budget in 2014 and what is it today? In 2014, the budget was 1.8 million and our budget today is 3.2 million. So we've almost doubled it in six years. And one, one could, you know, think about this in, in a way where that's, that's, a testament to your success, right? Like if you were able to double the budget, that means you're doing something incredible. But I I think um, you would be the best to explain that really long, hard journey to get to a place uh, like we're at today in which we are able to raise the cash, $3.2 million. Yeah, and I think when people hear that number, they... they think of it as a success. I don't, I don't think I think of it as much of a, a success as other people do. At the end of the day, what that really means is in 2014, we were producing the event for 1.8 million. And today we are spending 3.2 million to produce the event. Like, it's not like we suddenly have an extra million dollars in the bank. Um, so what I discovered in 2014, and you have to really think about where the agency came from. So pride started as a grassroots, uh, all volunteer, 
um, event that happened in the 70s and 80s, and it was always volunteers who were putting it together. God bless them. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Castro Street Fair is a similar model to that, where it's a volunteer group that puts things on. But, uh, and then sometime in, in the late 80s, the agency changed and said, we've gotten too big. This event is too big. We need to hire professionals to actually do the, the event production and change the model to a formal 501c3, um, hired an executive director, and then that the executive director was tasked with bringing in contractors and employees to actually produce this event. Um, and to this day, there are still like remnants of the all volunteer organization, like, like the membership or, or how we interact with the community. I don't say that in a bad way. I mean, I think it's important that we, that we still have that connection to our roots while simultaneously recognizing that you do need professional people to produce this event. I feel like I've gotten far from your question. Um, so what I discovered in 2014 is there were still a lot of things either just being done by volunteers or being done by contractors who were severely underpaid. And you would you could like look them in their eye after being out there for four days loading this event in. And at the end of four days, people were wiped out. So it became apparent to me we need to raise more money. We need to be able to pay people more for the services that they're bringing to us. We need to be able to pay entertainers on our stage and we need to be able to hire more people so that I don't have like five people killing themselves to produce this event for a hundred, a million people. But SF pride itself is still how many staff people? We have four full-time staff. Uh, and then we have about a dozen contractors. Okay. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, growing the organization to address the issues that it may face. And uh, I'm just going to go there. I think that there are some things that we will are able to share. And it's your exit interview. Um, but many people have an idea or have an opinion regarding the state of the organization starting with 2014 until now, but may may not have heard from you directly when it comes to um how volatile it was and, 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 and that it was faced with some legal issues and, and you really had to dig so deep, not that you had a legal, um, degree or law degree, uh, but you had to dig very, very deep and, and find a way to protect and save this organization. Yeah. I mean, it definitely faced challenges over and you, and you were there for part of that time as well. Um, uh, there were definitely legal challenges to the agency um, that were real, uh, and we were lucky to have um, counsel that um, uh, did did well by us. Um, and and that was one of the unexpected things coming into the door. Like I I didn't uh, I didn't expect to face that so immediately. Um, when I was getting hired, I remember my interview well because I remember. Uh, someone in the interview the fourth time asking me what I thought the most important thing was uh, that that the agency needed or that I could bring to the table. And I was like, and this was coming out of some real volatility, right? Again, all new board. I was like, you need stability. You need consistency. Like you just need someone to be here like and show like prior to me, there were, I believe, four or five executive directors who whose term was around a year, maybe a little more than a year, some even less than a year. So when you're looking at leadership, just constantly turning over um, and uh, there's, there's no way to build consistency. There's no way to retain institutional knowledge mm -hmm. and you can't produce an event of this size where the impact on the city and on, on public safety is so great with a constantly rotating cast of characters. You need people who, who have experience and who have done it year over year. Fortunately for pride, there were two or three contractors um, like Marsha Levine or Joe Wagenhofer or, or um, Audrey Joseph who had been there for 15 or 20 years doing the, I will call it the grunt work while the executive director and the board were more the forward facing part of the organization. 
Um, Marcia is still there today. Joe, quite uh, grateful for that he retired um, a couple years after I started. Um, and but he had trained, you know, a producer to take over after he left. Um, and so I don't believe that challenge will ever change. The agency needs consistency. The agency will not be successful um, if there is constant turnover. Mm -hmm. um, you need to have, and so we've done things. We've worked on on um, changing the way the board is elected and the types of terms that they serve, so that people get multiple cycles to to understand the the event. Um, quite honestly, I'm. Uh, I'm excited about my new opportunity and it came along a little bit sooner than I expected it to next year is pride's 50th anniversary. And we've been planning for years now. Um, I've been talking about the 50th anniversary, um, and fully expected that I would have, have been at the helm through the 50th, um, until this opportunity came along. That was just too great to say, sure. uh, to pass up. Like I'm, uh, one of the things I, I pull from just listening to you is, um, there's this message in your voice that uh, pride has to happen. Pride has to keep going, the celebration. You know, whether it's it's change from 50 years ago, what it is today, whatever it is, it has to keep going. And you talk about it in this way where there are no options. Like there's not a day in which we can imagine that we don't have pride. I wonder, you know, serving for the organization, also being part of the community and knowing that it's about to celebrate its 50th anniversary. What does pride mean to you? I get that question a different way a lot. And, and I think you get that had got it too. When you were involved with the organization, people always ask like, is pride still relevant? And I mean, all you need to do is turn on the news this morning to say, yes, pride is still relevant. Um, we can't sit back and, and assume that all of the, the gains we've made are just safe and that people are going to leave us alone and say, oh, that's done now. We won't bother them anymore. That's not the case. Um, this administration proves that every day. Um, and I, th it's so, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. When I look at something like the women's March that clearly has, has, taken hold and has legs and is happening annually and it's happening in cities around the the country it's one of the few things that i think is comparable to pride when you think about it like the the pride march and 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 rallies that have turned into celebrations kind of came out of that 1960s protest era um where what I think is phenomenal is like, here's this thing that you started in, in 69, 70 in terms of commemorating the struggles that we now do annually. And not only do we do it annually, it's annually around the globe. And there have been other protest movements that d did not get that kind of traction and didn't turn into a celebration or a, a positive reaffirming of, of who they were within that movement. I see that in the women's March though. Like, I think the Women's March is, is the next pride in terms of how that movement has taken off in this country and in cities around this country. Interesting. And we were talking about, about this a bit before the program. Um, a lot of people look at what pride has become, and some folks are nostalgic for the days when it was just however many people walk, you know, marching down the street protesting. Um, how do you see it? And for you too, Michelle, mm. as what it has become today where you have so many allies, individuals and corporations and other organizations and churches and all this stuff who are also a part of this, does that dilute the purpose of it or does that a sign of success or, or what? How do you see it, George? I mean, I personally see it as a sign of success. Um, if you look at where we were uh, going back to the coming out story, I remember the first gay bar I went to was in a dingy hole in the wall in Washington, D.C. There were no windows. There was an iron door. I remember that door slamming behind me and wondering, am I ever going to get out of here? <laughs> um, and, and it was just you and Larry Craig in there. They, but there were a handful of people in there. I can tell you Donna Summer, I Feel Love was playing, and that made me happy. Um, but... Uh, 
so I think about where we were then mm-hmm. and what it would have meant to, I remember the first time I told people at work that I was gay, wondering like, what was that going to mean? Was I going to keep my job? Were they going to embrace me? So the fact that, that we have evolved over the, the these, I'll call it 50 years since Stonewall and, and even more than that since Compton's, that mm-hmm. that we've evolved to a place where, yeah, you can be out at work. And not only that, uh, you know, a lot of the corporations who are participating with Pride are participating with Pride because internally their LGBTQ employees are saying, we want you to be a part of this. Like we want to be, you're, you're representing us when, when you're in the parade. Um, so it's not, I'm not going to say it's not somewhat about marketing, but it's also about really showing up for their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I, you know, like, again, we did not have that in the, in the early seventies. Um, and in terms of allies showing up, uh, that's another and it's not a loud criticism, but I hear criticism like, you know, there's more straight people at Pride than there are gay people at Pride. I actually think there's more questioning people at Pride than maybe ever before, but they're not all straight. And uh, and I think about like taking my nieces and nephews when they were 12 to 17 or 18, and now they're in their 20s. And they still want to go to pride events or or come here to they have come here and actually worked as volunteers on the team. Um, So when I hear people like kind of talk ill of allies showing it up at our event, I'm like, you're talking about my nieces and nephews like they are allies and they are showing up and I want them to. And so that's how I feel about the rest of the allies that are showing up. You really want me to answer as well? Go for it. For those who are joining, uh, I did serve as board president of San Francisco Pride. I stepped uh, away last year, um, and and that's probably why John is asking me to answer that. You know, one of the things I took away after serving was recognizing my own pain and trauma from being around uh, community members and understanding and acknowledging that we are still experiencing the pain and the trauma from our history, it's not, you know, our history is new in terms of media attention. And so, yeah, of course, it feels incredibly overwhelming to uh, this thing that was very specific to us that our movement or our people were engaged in to have to fight back and use their bodies, um, their own compromise, their own safety. And then all of a sudden, you've got people who 50 years ago were not standing by your side all, you know, and they're waving the flag. And it's like, do you even understand what that means? And you and you want to you want them to understand the pain that we had to go through. And so to answer, you know, John's question, um, I think that pride is a platform for all of us to to be engaged it's our responsibility as members of the lgbtq community to to keep being engaged um pride now is uh what what we had hoped for i think a part of the american celebration of fabric we can't we can't just lose sight of that but then if you become passive and you don't show up and you don't engage and you don't keep using the platform then people aren't going to see you and people aren't going to hear you um, and so if you, you, you have a different vision, you want it to be something else. You want someone to hear your pain and your trauma. You have to show up. You have to engage. Uh, it is sad. It's painful for me to know that in the end of even my service, that there are issues, ongoing issues that we face, such as the violence that transgender people face, um, issues of people of color, the poverty still is a, it, it is a crime in our country. What do we do? How do we reprioritize those voices? We still have a chance to reprioritize those voices. And that's to, you know, we can use pride to our advantage, but if we don't, then we become voiceless again. So it's a it's an interesting time in which one of my questions to you was, you're leaving right before the 50th year anniversary, but it is perfect time to think about the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And as you look into the future and you think about the legacy that you're leaving, you, you have helped stabilize this organization. Um, you're leaving money in the bank, <laughs> which is really exciting for an LGBTQ organization. And you're leaving it with more stability, like less of an opportunity for turnover. I mean, what are what are your hopes? You know, um, yeah. And and what are you most proud of 
you know, as well. I mean, I hope I hope that the last six years have created a level of stability that the agency can build off of and that the event can build off of. Um, and I, I think it's hard to know. I don't know that 10 years ago we would have imagined Pride is where it's at today. So it's kind of hard to look 10 years into the future, into the crystal ball to see what that would be like. Um, I think I am most proud of, of uh, kind of changing... Look, first of all, people who are, we're, we're a bucket list event, right? I mean, people around the world want to go to San Francisco Pride once, um, at least. Um, but for locals, I, we, we treat it much differently. It's, it's in our backyard. We take it for granted. Um, it's quite possibly an annoyance because there are so many out of towners who are here. Um, and, and, uh, I think, um, I lost my train of thought in, with regards to your question. Um, I, I hope that, I hope that people will, local people will continue to see the value of what we do as an event. Um, you look at pride events uh, around the globe and predominantly they're ticketed events. They're something where you've got to pay, um, you've got to be in a, in, in a sit in a, in a place where you can pay a certain amount of money to go see an act or go to the festival. Again, ours is 25 city blocks. It's free. We ask for a donation at the gate. If you're listening, just give us a dollar when you walk through the gate. That is, helps tremendously. Um, I hope that 50 years from now, it is still a free event, that it's still this civic gathering um, in in the heart of the city. We're, we're throwing a, we're throwing a, a, a stage and performance and rally and speakers on the steps of city hall. Um, that's a huge statement. Um, and that, and that, that is going to be the hardest thing is to keep it free, um, for everyone. I would say, and I can't take credit for this. Um, uh, I am proud of the fact that it is as diverse as it is. I think, um, often people talk about pride and, uh, talk about the lack of diversity um, or the lack of accessibility for certain communities. And I think that's real when you think about it. Again, if you think about it outside of San Francisco, I am not saying we're perfect and I'm not saying that we don't do things wrong. We don't get everything right. But uh, what we do strive to do is to keep it um, as accessible to as many people as possible and as diverse um, for as many people as possible. I can't take credit for the 20 plus stages at Civic Center. Those existed before I came on. Um, and they are, it is challenging to produce something that large, but the value of that and what that gives back to the community and what that allows the community to engage in is, is priceless and worth every, every blood, sweat and tears that it takes to make it happen. Let me build off part of something you just said. We've got a question submitted from the audience. Um, and how has SF Pride been making efforts to create inclusive spaces at Pride Celebration for queer people of color? Many of my Asian queer women's friends do not go to Pride anymore. Um, so I mean, how, how do you both be welcoming and, and address really, oops, sorry, so many different people who want to be a part of this? Sure. And that's a great question. Um, I, what we do, I mean, the way our structure is set up, um, and specifically we try to address it at the celebration site itself. Um, and that is where 20 plus stages and venues came from. Um, what the challenge has been for us is we are so big and sprawling in terms of everything we do that, um, it's hard for us to tell our story. It's hard for us to communicate you know, outwardly all of the things that we do. So um, there are stages and gathering spaces at the celebration that kind of cross generations and genres and um, everything from like, uh, like the leather community has, has a, an enclosed alley where they do demonstrations. Um, there's a, a women's focus stage that focuses on, and it, but that's more of like an entertainment stage for like dancing and celebration. 
Um, we've got a uh, children's area that is um, produced in partnership with our family coalition that are bringing out queer families and their children. Um, we have a daycare center that we set up at the celebration site. There's other live stages that focus either on like Latin specific music or um, uh, homo hip hop um, or live soul. Um, and all of that information is I is on our website and in a magazine, but it's a lot to digest. And you certainly can't, I don't think you, it would be impossible to go to the celebration and expect to experience all of that because it's crowded. It's hard to move around. Um, so you almost have to go there with an intention to find those spaces. And those spaces have existed for a long time, again, prior to, to my engagement with the organization. Um, and a lot of the producers of those have just sort of been like they're long term. They've been all of those producers have been doing their work and they're volunteering to do it longer than I've been been at the helm. Um, so that's where we have created the space in the past. And the agency is sort of strapped with resources. So our focus is always on the parade and the celebration. That is the core of what we do. Like if we don't do those two things, well, nothing else really matters. Like that's our mission. That's why we were formed. Um, so then the ability to create space outside of that or to create opportunities outside of that. Um, I've been a huge advocate of not necessarily pride being the, the organization that creates it, but pride being the, the organization that helps to amplify it. So if you are a queer woman of color and have an event that's happening in the city or um, a social gathering or, or uh, an organization for people to join, one, we've got a community calendar on our website that's free for everybody to post something. Um, we, we encourage people to engage with us, to let us know what they're doing in the community. And then if we're able to incorporate that into our social media messaging, like we have a lot of people following us and paying attention to our channels. So if we can help amplify what somebody else in the community is doing, we want to do that. Um, and that has been an, an initiative of the last five or six years to really use our channels more proactively that way. Thank you for that question. Oh, Dad, yeah, it goes back to being active and in, engaged. Uh, for for me, it was like I love the images of pride and and images of queer people in San Francisco. And over ten years ago, I said that that should be shown to every single person in the world. Like, let's do a you know, like the the, the parade broadcast shouldn't just be here in San Francisco locally. It should be everywhere in the world. Everyone should see it. And it's really taken over 10 years of just being part of the organization and, and showing up and doing it, right? Like, and, and producing it. Like, that's what I mean by, yeah, Pride not, might, might not be what it was or maybe what it was for you the first time you went. But if you let go of this incredible platform and you don't show up, then it's really not going to be for our community. We have to stay engaged. Um. Uh, I, we have a little bit of time left, and so I don't want to hog up all of George's time. I could call him and be like, hey, do you want to have dinner? Um, <laughs> I want to leave some time for the audience if you do have any questions. I know we have question cards if you wrote them down. Um, I have kind of a, a vague question, but um, it's kind of a big think one. Where, how do you see the SF Pride organization and its goals fitting in when we just think of like nationally all the various gay, you know, important LGBTQ movements and organizations. I mean, what, what does it accomplish and what is it, where does it fit in that? I, I don't know if I understand the question um, completely, but I'll try to answer. Um, I mean, I, at the end of the day, and this is more about San Francisco and less about San Francisco pride, mm -hmm. right? San Francisco pushes the boundaries. San Francisco is a voice for the left and um, I think rightfully changes the dialogue um, and pushes, pushes, pushes us to be better um, and to push boundaries. And by, by, 
by being an event that happens in San Francisco that is so politically volatile and apparent, of course, pride is going to be the same. So I, I, I know for a fact that other prides around the country and around, like they look to us for, well, how does San Francisco pride do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can't imagine that San Francisco pride is not going to continue to be a leader in that space. Um, and in terms of other organizations, I, uh, and Michelle has heard me say this a thousand times, like, I personally feel that our our main purpose at Pride is to create the space for other people to to bring out their megaphone and be heard. At the end of the day, we are not driving every we San Francisco Pride the organization is not driving every message that you see in the parade from a stage or at the celebration. What we are creating is the opportunity for you to come and be a part of that parade, come and be a part of that celebration and, and bring your message, bring um, what you're trying to like, use us that way. That's, yeah. That is what we're there for. Yesterday, Michelle and I were talking about World Pride, which is in New York. And uh, I, I, I actually asked, what's the point of it? Because I would suspect in a way, San Francisco Pride is World Pride. I mean, it's the er pride, if you will, that I think a lot of people think about. So it's really right along with that. I mean, you're the the gold standard, I think, of pride celebrations and parades. Audience question: What does the city kick in regarding like police, security, roadblocks, etc.? Or does SF Pride have to pay for all of that? SF Pride pays for a lot of it. Um, at the same time, the city is a good partner. So. Um, and without getting in the weeds and going line by line, and I'm a total like spreadsheet and budget nerd, so I could do that for you. Um, uh, there are things we pay 100% for. Um, and there are other things that, uh, I mean, in terms of law enforcement and support from um, city agencies to make sure that it's safe and protected, um, they're bringing resources to the table um, to, to augment what we're already doing. Um, and, I think I think the short answer to that question is there are certain people in the community that think the city should be paying a lot more for um, for propping us up. Um, And uh, and we do bring a lot of people to the city and a lot of revenue to the city. Um, However, I think the city is a tremendous partner. And that has been my experience. Like I've been doing this work now for 16 years um, and I also recognize that, you know, DPW employees need to get paid and SFMTA employees need to get paid and the police and the fire department and everyone else who's involved in it. So um, at the end of the day, uh, w- these events are big disruptions within the city um, and uh, the city needs resources to to pay their employees to help support the event. Um, but my big takeaway is the city is a tremendous partner. Yeah. You had mentioned, uh, is there another question? Another question? I've got a question. Um, on your board of directors, uh, are they all gay people? On the board of directors, are they all gay people or are they like mixed? You know, do you just like, you know, bring people on depending on their skills and talents? Um, it's definitely diverse, um, and they everyone on the board identifies somewhere on the spectrum of LGBTQ, um, and uh, and then on top of that, we do go out and look for certain skills that we would want on the board or expertise that we would want people to bring to the table. Um, our current board president, for example, um, identifies as bisexual, um, so. Uh, and we've got 13 board members right now, and it runs, it runs the spectrum of the LGBTQ alphabet. What words of advice do you have for the next leader who steps into your role? Breathe. <laughs> um, don't feel like you need to react immediately. Um, Definitely take the time to compose your thoughts, to, to uh, examine the whole landscape. 
I mean, there's so many things that are coming at you from so many angles uh, that, and I, and I think I practice what I preach. In fact, I think uh, some people might criticize me for being too slow to respond to things or, um, or, or why isn't he responding immediately? Um, and it, that's, that just comes from a place of wanting, like I want as much knowledge on whatever is coming at me before I make some judgment call on it or decision about it. Um, and I think that serves the agency well, if you have that kind of, uh, patience before you, before you act. You know, a question Michelle has asked a number of folks who've been guests on this program is how do you take care of yourself? So when things are getting really stressful as they do, and, you know, I mean, how do you ensure that you don't just lose it? (laughs) I'm bad at that. Um, uh, I try to do things like go to the gym. I will say I cook dinner every night for myself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that has gotten to a point where it's like 11 o'clock at night and Mm -hmm. I'm cooking, but I, that's important to disconnect. Um, uh, personally, I like to watch, uh, the most inane sitcoms there are. I will watch a sitcom at any time. I don't care how predictable it is. Um, uh, I have a dog that comes to the office with me every day. So if it gets really intense, I can take a moment to look at him literally sitting in the chair in my office snoring while whatever else (laughs) is going on. And I'm reminded that, okay, well, and he probably has to go to the bathroom soon. Um, I, I want to I want to touch on the self care thing because one of the things I, I really wanted the community to also hear is like part of your decision and in 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 thinking about um, a, a different position that you would take you know because for many of us we're like the you've been talking about the organization's needs consistency so why are you leaving George you can't leave um, but as friends, like you, this started when we were serving together and he started the conversation of already looking into his life in the near future and what the next 10 years would look like. And we just did a conversation last night on LG, being LGBTQ and aging. And what I appreciated about this conversation between us was that it was honest and that you were candid of what you wanted your the next 10 years of your life to look at and that you really were stepping away to take care of yourself and wanting a, 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 a situation where it was stable for you, if I'm articulating it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, before the wreck and park opportunity came along, I kind of looked at the 50th anniversary as my end note, uh, perhaps, perhaps, um, and I knew that after that, I wanted to do something that, um, hopefully allowed me to focus a little bit more on taking care of myself, um, being able to physically take care of myself. I, in the six years that I've been at pride, I've had the opportunity to take one vacation. That's oh. on me as much as it is on like, trust me, Michelle, every other board member is like, get out of here, go away for a week. Um, so I take responsibility for that, but, uh, Um, and so, yes, part of it is self-care. The other thing, and I still stand by it needs consistency. And I think, you know, your first year in the role, you're learning, um, you're really not going to start to affect change until your second or third year. And then at some point you need to move aside and create space for more voices to come in and take over. So while consistency is important, I think that evolution of who's leading the organization and what that looks like also needs to happen. I asked you a question of, of what advice you have for someone who steps into your role, but from the executive director's position, I mean, you know, because it's, it, there's the board, there's the staff, and then, then the members, what words of advice would you have for future, current and future board members? Kind of the same advice, right? I mean, they're coming into, uh, they're the forward facing, the community, the answer to the community, they're out in the community all the time. Um, and it's that same advice of one, d- don't expect to make change in your first year, like, like get settled, understand what we do and how we do it, and then bring your ideas forward to, to make change. And then two, 
have, have faith and trust in the people you've hired who are professional to do the work um, and, and take a breath before reacting to something. Um, As we wind down, I mean, I really wanted to find a point in our conversation if we could pull things out of you, such as most embarrassing moment, most regrettable moment. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I fell down once, but I don't know that I'm that embarrassed by it. Um, it was near, this? it was near the broadcast platform <laughs> and it was literally minutes before the parade was about to start. And I had two radios on my hips and I was carrying something and I tripped on a curb and just went face down and no one knew who I was. Like everybody is just waiting for the parade to start. And I'm just praying that I didn't break anything that I can actually stand back up and move. Um, and I, to this day have a bruise on the bone on my elbow from that fall. And that was, I think 2016. Well, let me ask, you must have met so many interesting people, famous and non, through your time there. I mean, what are some of the highlights? What were, who, who impressed you? Who, mm. who really uh, kind of stays with you? The person who sticks with me is Jules Gutierrez. Um, and that was 2014. So I do remember something from my first year. Um, she is the transgender teen from Hercules who had been bullied in school and stood up for herself. And she was charged with assault and battery for standing up for herself. Um, and her, her, uh, the bullies were not. So that year she was, um, the, I think it was the public voted her one of our community grand marshals. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see how important it was to her to, be embraced by the like to be embraced by something as big as San Francisco Pride and the amount of people who came. Mm-hmm. Um, you could just see it on her face, and she was so like taken with it. Her parents came with her to every event. Um, I remember uh, seeing her at a press conference, and she was like leaving, and I was disappointed that I didn't get to say anything to her. And then, like like three minutes later, she came running back to give me a hug. So out of all the celebrities or grand marshals, and there've been some incredible ones. Like she still stands out for me. Any, um, I, I was going to bring up elected leaders, but it, it, yeah, I just think one day we're going to run out of space for our elected leaders in San Francisco who are LGBTQ. I mean, I think we have the, uh, is it record this year of how many? I think it is a record this year. Um, yeah. yeah, we're going to break a few records this year in terms of, of political involvement in our parade. <laughs> I how wonder ma- why. How many hours will it last? Make a prediction. Um, I predict it will last five hours. Um, so I think we will. We are trying very hard to be done by 3.30 mm. on Sunday. Um, it could go as late as 4.30. Um, I think that was our end time last year. Um, but we are doing everything we can to make that i mean that's a long time to be standing there and watching a parade or participating in it are we going to enjoy michelle's voice on the uh the broadcast yes you you will for another year <laughs> at least uh the parade broadcast airs on kbcw uh and that sunday evening Even. no yes so there's a live webcast um that will that you can find on i think cbstv.com that's right and then uh there's a highlight show that will run on kpix and kbcw great how come i didn't know that i don't know (laughs) i don't know and pride is next weekend um george thank you so much for your service i really just wanted an opportunity to to talk with you leader of the community and the organization and not very many people get to hear from your perspective of all the hard work and the dedication um that you put into this thing that's so important to all of us pride means something to all of us so thank you thank you thanks for this i mean you know how much i genuinely love you and loved working with you so i appreciate this opportunity today 
I appreciate that we got an hour to actually have a conversation. We haven't had that in a while. So, um. Actually, I loved it because you know what? Now I'm super excited for Pride. It is next weekend. Hope to see you all there. And also walking out of this program, absolutely proud, proud of our achievements. And it's it, we need this moment to feel proud when so much is coming at us and continues to come at us. Um, all the bad. I mean, I opened up the the talk joking about a possible war, but these things are happening. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Meow Show. We're here every Thursday afternoon uh, at noon with my co-host, John Zipper. Next week, we have two programs. Um, on Thursday, we're celebrating LGBTQ families and speaking specifically about gay fatherhood with James LaDuca, who's the new diversity and inclusion director for Twitter. And also another gentleman who serves as the marketing officer of Zendesk. And so just thinking about where we were 50 years ago, where we're at today, informing our families. And then Friday, we have a special program with celebrity grand marshals, uh, I should say grand marshal of San Francisco Pride, uh, Lauren Morelli, who's the executive producer of the new Tales of the City. And and uh, I'm going to put a big asterisk on there, but more big speakers to add onto that list so make sure you check it out happy pride and we'll see you next time